Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good afternoon, everybody. Today is Friday, December 18, 2020. And welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the weekly podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. And we're continuing our series uh, called State of Play, where we speak with people in the muni industry. And today we have Emily Brock. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. And we also have two of our intrepid reporters, Kaylin Devin in Chicago and Chuck Stanley in Washington, D.C. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us. All right. So let's uh, give a brief bio of Emily. She is as director of GFOAs, which is the Government Finance Officers Association, Federal Liaison Center. Emily leads coalition advocacy efforts of the Public Finance Network in Washington, D.C. Her advocacy includes anticipating and responding to federal legislative and regulatory activities that impact the finance functions of state and local governments and public sector entities, including tax reform, municipal securities disclosure, and public pension and benefit issues. Emily also serves as staff on GFOA's debt committee, working with committee members to develop best practices that promote sound financial practices for local, state, and provincial governments. I think you set that up as a tongue twister. (laughs) (laughs) But but anyway, so welcome to our show. We're we're glad to have you. And given that it's uh, high noon here on the East Coast and literally the clock is ticking in Washington, and on this podcast, we'd like to get started. So uh, Chuck, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks so much. First, uh, obviously we're all waiting to see if a new round of COVID-19 stimulus gets done in Congress before the holiday. And I wonder if you can just bring us up to speed on what the situation is right now with regard to an aid bill. Well, thank you again for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat uh, with you guys today. Um, I had just, refreshed my browser as you were asking me that question just to see <laughs> in the in the hot chance that they may <laughs> release the final bill text for the Emergency Coronavirus Relief Act of 2020. As you and your readers uh, definitely know, we're in the midst of a conversation in Washington, D.C., where um, the Senate and the House a group of moderate Democrats, a group of moderate Republicans, um, both in the House and the Senate have come together to say, you know what, enough is enough, we need stimulus. And this is the proposal that we think has some kind of opportunity of passage. And they introduced on Monday of this week, which was the 15th of December, they introduced uh, the Emergency Coronavirus Relief Act of 2020, which included $908 billion of aid for different needs across the country. And um, one of obviously that was was especially important to us um, included in this $908 billion proposal was $160 billion to state and local governments as direct aid. In addition, of course, they did a few other things that that sound familiar when we look at the CARES Act. You know, they 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 re-upped the Paycheck Protection Program or what people call the PPP. They added money into unemployment insurance. Again, this proposal did did things that were similar to the CARES Act, but then of course they went beyond the CARES Act this time around. They talked about the vaccine just development and distribution 
testing and tracing of the pandemic. Um, they addressed healthcare providers and uh, addiction and mental health. So, so other significant areas um, that were addressed in um, this proposal. Now, when that $908 billion bill came out, uh, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader McConnell said, well, thank you, we'll take that <laughs> and we'll come up with the final bill. So, so far, um, McConnell, Pelosi and Mnuchin have kind of locked themselves into a room and, and Schumer have locked themselves in a room and they have made a determination that the best possible way for this bill to pass is to take out the poison pills. And the, the, those are the provisions that really neither caucus can stand behind. And by doing that, they have separated all of the sort of old and new provisions of the CARES Act from state and local support. Um, so the state and local support was carved out of the $908 billion bill as was liability protection for corporations. Those are the two poison pills that they decided to put in a separate bill. Um, and now they're looking at a $748 billion proposal. It sounds like um, it was widely reported yesterday and the day before, that is Thursday and Wednesday of this week, that they may include direct checks to tax paying um, uh, folks in the country. And it may be as much as $600, $700, $800. But at, <laughs> this is all a discussion about what we think is going to be in the final bill. None of us actually have the final bill text just yet. So again, refreshing my browser right now, still don't have it. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the most up-to-date version I have. So it's wild to think that um, state and local aid is considered a poison pill like what you just said. Um, I wanted to ask you one question about, about priorities, but before that, what do you think, Emily, the chances are that we might see, even if this bill passes without it, that we might see state and local aid come back? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, of course that's gonna be a priority for us. If that is in fact a poison pill um, and it doesn't see its way to this bipartisan proposal, if in fact this bipartisan proposal does pass, we, it will be, and it will continue to be a priority of ours um, in 2021. So the possibility of both this bipartisan bill passing and then additionally more state and local aid early in January or in February is, is, it is unknown. We remain optimistic, but I mean, I think we've got to all think about the prospect of the fact that the federal government would have just paid $900 billion and their expectation is that they would want to measure its success um, so in, in so doing, you know, the OMB will get involved, the GAO will get involved, and it might take a little while for Congress to readdress state and local government support. And so that has been what we've been communicating with Congress these last couple of weeks in December to say it, it is absolutely a priority to ensure that that $160 billion is included in this bill because we fear that them addressing direct aid uh, might be further down the road than 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 otherwise. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So besides that, um, or maybe that is it. What do you see generally as the top lobbying priority for Muni's in the new year with the new administration? 
You know, I think we have, you mentioned it is a new administration, but it's an administration that was around when ARA, of course, was implemented and discussed. And so there are some unique opportunities to actually talk about legacy things that happened in ARA. Bank qualified debt, for example, this is a, um, the, the President-elect Biden understands um, what happened in ARA. Not only that, but we also have Chairman Neal, who was around during ARA, Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and um, also a huge fan of bank qualified debt. So we're certainly going to be talking about that for our rural and smaller issuers in 501c3s. In addition, um, it's it's very much a unique opportunity to bring up um, elements of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And specifically, one of the things that is important to all of us is bringing back uh, tax-exempt advance refunding. We, we have consistently lobbied for um, the reintroduction of advance refunding. We actually do have bipartisan, bicameral proposals right now. Um, of course, those proposals will end at the end of this Congress. We have to look forward to reintroduction of advance refunding, and we do have commitments from our champions on both sides um, to highlight advance refunding. And of course, the last thing I would say from a general municipal bond perspective and our market perspective, we just have to remain vigilant that there's no cap or elimination of the tax exemption on municipal bonds. I believe, I, I'm sure all of us recall that in the Obama administration, there was actually a proposal for a 28% cap on, on uh, the tax exemption. We're gonna have to make sure that uh, the Biden administration does understand the implications of a cap on the tax exemption. Um, and we're going to make sure that they understand both sides of the coin, that it is a, that it is a 10 to one payout for the federal government and that 75% of state and local governments shoulder the cost of infrastructure by the use of tax, the tax exemption in municipal bonds. And with all those things that uh, you just mentioned, as things stand right now, control of the Senate for the upcoming session is still in question. There's an upcoming runoff for Georgia's two Republican-held Senate seats that'll determine which party holds a narrow majority. How will control of the Senate determine uh, the legislative agenda for 2021 with regard to the muni market? Well, I think it puts an interesting twist on what I just mentioned, which was sort of a revisiting of the legacy items of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. You know, the SALT provision that's in there, of course, is going to face sort of stiff competition if we if there is a democratic initiative to eliminate the $10,000 cap on um, personal income, I'm sorry, property income and sales tax, then, you know, we're probably going to face some resistance by um, a Republican controlled Senate. And so there are questions, of course, about that. And of of course, about advance refunding um, and the possibility of sort of the speed bump, if you will, of a Republican Senate. Um, so if there are money bills that kind of originate and they are bipartisan and they are bicameral, um, that certainly helps us. We are a coalition that thrives on ensuring that it's not, our, our issues are not political issues. Instead, they are, <laughs> they are economic and infrastructure issues. And that certainly is how we've been able to garner support on both sides of the aisle for many of our initiatives. So in recent, just in the last, I think, 24 hours, like you were saying, everything's moving really fast. We've seen the municipal liquidity facility and other programs that were authorized under the CARES Act pop back up and become possibly a sticking point with the new, with the um, the 
the stimulus package that they're trying to hammer out today. What do you think is going to happen with, in particular, with the MLF, which the muni market, you know, it ended up not being used that much, but people kind of like it as a backstop. What do you think is going to happen with that either in this current bill or, or possibly next year? Uh, yeah, so the, the municipal liquidity facility is something that um, GFOA, along with other issuer organizations like, um, you know, the Na National Association of State Treasurers, uh, the National Association of Counties and Cities. The reason I mention our sister organizations is because it was it was a lot bigger than just us when the MLF was beginning to be discussed. And when, you know, the, the, the MLF as originally designed in the CARES Act, I recall in um March, late March, um, you know, having Saturday, <laughs> Saturday calls, late night calls, all kinds of calls with staff about um, congressional staff about what is the purpose of the municipal liquidity facility and how is it written into how can the legislative intent be written into law, you know, and at the end of the day, it did what it said that it was going to do, which which was to help stabilize the economy. And um, in particular, to help backstop the municipal bond market. Um, it did what it said that it was going to do in 2020. Now, here we are at the end of 2020. And um, as we all know, uh, the NOIs had to be submitted for any new debt by December 1st. Um, Illinois and the MTA have tapped out um, their allowable um, capital from the MLF. And we have consistently sent messages to the Federal Reserve, to Secretary Mnuchin, and to members of the CARES Act Oversight Commission, which includes Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania, that the MLF needs to remain intact. Um, the reason for that is because we're, we're states and local governments are at a precipice. We, like there's, we're at a point in time where things um, in 2021 are not necessarily going to get better in terms of revenues, in terms of expenses, and especially in the context of a skinnier um, uh, uh, stimulus bill than we had um, anticipated and asked for and continue to ask for. And so we think that this, this sort of short-sightedness of sort of shutting down the facility at the end of this year is really going to do um, I think the the legislative intent of the CARES Act uh, disservice, and I also think that um, the the Federal Reserve has been hinting at. Of course, um, the Chairman Powell has been hinting at the fact that you know stability will still be needed into 2021. Um, you know, we will see at the end of the day what ends up in the bipartisan proposal. But the fact is. The Section 13.3 facilities that were established by the CARES Act are now funded in special purpose vehicles that are under the purview of the Federal Reserve. We have an interesting opportunity with a potential new um, Secretary of the Treasury who may feel likewise. And she or he or whomever is nominated in the Secretary position um, may determine that the MLF can um, and should uh, be funded again. That certainly is an opportunity. That is something that um, the, the Treasury has at its avail under Section 133. Um, and we will certainly be working with uh, the Secretary of the Treasury as well as the Federal Reserve to help 
um, reestablish that MLF. And one of the things that we've seen over the last year that I wanted to ask you about is the the surge in taxable muni issuance. Is that something that you see continuing in 2021? Well, thanks for the question, Chuck. I, I think that um, the reason that this year was, and and, and you all have reported, and um, <laughs> it's pretty, fairly well known, this is a record year of, of muni issuance, and it's largely due to um, taxable munis. And, um, you know, of course, what, what that absolutely depends on are interest rates. And the question is really, Emily, what do you think about, <laughs> what do you think interest rates are going to do? And what do you think that <laughs> pricing is going to look like? I think that we are right now on the cusp of two very important federal actions that may be determinative of what the markets do, you know, uh, Monday morning or certainly in um, early January. And um, I think that that's, of course, an important element of what we'll see in terms of taxable munis. Now, what I would say, too, just as a follow up, you know, I have the luxury of talking with so many amazing members of GFOA. And um, many of them have reported doing, I think they call it the unnatural act of issuing taxables. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it feels natural, but I do think that um, it has gotten them over the hump of not having tax exempt advance refundings. At the end of the day, if we can get tax exempt advance refundings back, that's when we'll start to see that taxable muni surge kind of fall down. I think I've heard that too, Emily, from people, but I also wanted to say I was talking to somebody the other day and he pointed out that, you know, since the tax exempt advanceable advance refundings were prohibited and people started using taxables for advance refundings, that issuers have started to really like it um, for some of the same reasons they like it with new money which is that it gives him flexibility, even on the uh, even on the refunding side, like with negative arbitrage. So his prediction was, we might possibly continue to see people, even if the tax exempt advance refundings come back, we might continue to see people doing taxable, like he said, assuming that rates stay in a way where that it's beneficial to them. Um, so on another topic, LIBOR, you know, this is, we got about a year left, or maybe you could talk a little bit before it's phased out. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what's the latest with LIBOR. Yeah, so we, we um, GFOA sits on the Alternative Reference Rates Committee, and we have, have done so in order to make sure that the issuer community is aware of the cessation of LIBOR. And, you know, our primary objective is communications, outreach, and the elimination of risk of the cessation of LIBOR. Obviously, we have a time clock ticking on that. Um, just recently, the IBA came out with a consultation that would propose for an extension of LIBOR past 2021 into 2023. That on certain tenors of LIBOR. That proposal, while it's not exactly final, an effective communication campaign to our membership has been vital during, um, during this period. Of course, making sure everybody understands the dates and the final timelines. What's really interesting about LIBOR, of course, is the the vast exposure in swaps is in, um, obviously, is in the private sector. We have more volume in terms of dollars, in terms of exposure in uh, municipal bond swap activity, but there could be LIBOR in all kinds of financial transactions for state and local governments that we found. They could be in your investment contracts or your GICs. 
They could be in um, purchasing cards. There could be uh, LIBOR exposure in bank loans or private placements. Um, and so, of course, an element of our um, approach has been not only to be able to find and recognize where the exposure is, but also how to interact with your banks <laughs> to eliminate um, that exposure. That, of course, has a great deal of dependence on other organizations such as ISTA um, and the ISTA protocol that were re recently released, but also in bilateral agreements between the issuer and their banks on private placements and in bank loans. So all of these things, while LIBOR is kind of a high finance, mathy kind of topic, it all comes down at the end of the day to headline risk. And we really are just focusing on making th making sure things are plain English, that people can find their exposure and and nip it in the bud before it becomes an issue in 2021. That's very interesting, Emily. I know you're a very busy person, so I'd like to wrap it up with with just a few more questions. Actually, one question I'm going to phrase it in two ways. What does the appointment of Pete Buttigieg as a new transportation secretary mean for Munis, if anything? And also. What are the chances of like a large infrastructure bill coming? Well, I think I, I, just like um, sort of the the rest of I think the the municipal bond community, when we see a mayor <laughs> or a local government person <laughs> being nominated to the national office, that is a huge opportunity. I mm -hmm. think. Um, it, it's come to my attention, of course, that Pete Buttigieg did not oversee issuances or, or bond placements while he was mayor. But that does not mean that he's not involved in the large mayor local government conversation, you know, with many other folks who understand the power of the municipal bond to be able to enhance our infrastructure, our approach to infrastructure in this country. And then I think you asked me, Young, what are the chances for a big infrastructure bill? Mm -hmm. I think the chances are extremely high that we will see some discussion about a big infrastructure bill. I think Biden had it in his plan, as did Buttigieg in his presidential plan, um, and they were significant plans. I believe that Biden's was in a, the two trillion dollar, in the, in the two trillion dollar size. And so when you know when I think when Biden comes to the table, he's not going to he's not going to play around. It's going to be an absolute comprehensive approach. And I also think that he is um, having discussions with, of course, the Democratic leadership right now about the possibility of progress and enveloping other priorities that have already been established by the Democratic caucus, like green infrastructure, into that bill or into that proposal. So I think there's a lot of activity happening already. I'm getting the sense that there's a lot of energy behind infrastructure. Um, so I do get the sense that that will happen. You know, of course, as Chuck mentioned, control of the U.S. Senate is absolutely going to matter on the success of, of its passage. But thankfully, municipal bonds have the luxury of having bipartisan, bicameral support. And we're certainly going to be leaning on that throughout the discussion of the infrastructure bill. Yes, definitely. Uh, we all have our calendars marked for January 5th. <laughs> and uh, But Emily, thank you for your time. I know you're busy uh, refreshing your browser as we speak right now, so keep it, keep it going. We all are. <laughs> <laughs> and I just realized 
when you when earlier you were mentioning poison pill, I could see anti-vaxxers using that term now, saying, you know, <laughs> don't take it, it's a poison pill. So not just a financial term, but thank you everyone today, Emily Brock, Kaylin Devitt, uh, Chuck Stanley, and our producer, Christian Ayala. And, but most of all, our listeners out there in Muniland who tune in week after week for the latest on distressed muni debt on the muni lowdown. To everyone here and out there, have a great new year. Uh, best wishes for 2021. And stay safe, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.